Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. It was maybe the coolest idea I'd heard in the last 20 years. And so the idea caught fire in my brain and I knew I had a path. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Today is episode 125. And as we move into the cold of winter, I want to tell you the heartwarming story of another serial entrepreneur turned solar warrior. Bill Nussie is a tinkerer and a creator and he founded his first company in high school. He spent most of his career as a tech CEO, and he has some incredible stories from his time at Greylock Partners and as VP of Corporate Strategy at IBM. But his storytelling also extends to writing, and his newest project, Freeing Energy, is one of the best blogs that I've had the pleasure of reading lately. If you're a fan of Energy Transition Show and Chris Nelder, then you're going to love Bill Nussie. I want to give a hat tip to my friend Andy Klump for the great intro to Bill. And thanks to Bill and his partner, Ben, for taking time out of their busy schedule with me when I was recently in Atlanta to record this interview. You can find more great founder stories and solar startup advice and over 100 amazing episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, you should just check out the Suncast Tribe where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Would you click on the member button to find out more? But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today on Suncast, we are going to spend some time with a technologist. I may even call him a futurist, but he is someone whose past I am also incredibly interested in better understanding. Mr. Bill Nussie was recommended by another guest, our good friend Andy Klump, who suggested that he might be someone I'd want to spend some time with. I agreed with Andy and have thusly driven to Atlanta, which I rarely do, and I'm grateful to be in the presence of a tech entrepreneur who's had a modicum of success, a taste of that which many of us as entrepreneurs want to enjoy. And with that, I will just go ahead and introduce Mr. Bill Nussie. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I genuinely wish that we could have recorded much of, probably not all of the last uh, hour of us getting to know each other a little better. But let me start with just giving a quick overview. Bill, for those of you who aren't familiar, and if you're stretching and, and searching your database for where you know the Bill Nussie name from, uh, you won't find it in the in the archives of Energy Business. And he did not grow up you know, working for a utility or, or the like, as many of my guests have done, who are disrupting our energy from within. Now, Bill comes from the business of marketing tech. I'm not entirely sure uh, how to categorize that, but Bill uh, has started and, and uh, grown and sold uh, a number of businesses, the latest of which was a company called Silver Pop. He was the CEO and ultimately led to a, a very successful exit to IBM for IBM Marketing Cloud. The reason that Bill is on the show today 
is because since his time at IBM, he's become fascinated with one core thought, and that is the transformation of our energy grid. Even though I know he greatly admires the work of Amory Lovins, I'm going to proclaim now that he is perhaps the second coming of of Amory. Uh, and I think that I think that the work that he's working that he's uh, engaged in uh, is at least thinking on the level of an Amory Levin. So I'm proud to have him on the show. With that, Bill, w- would you give me a little bit of the fascinating background that got you to to IBM? But mainly, what I'm thinking about is the route that you sort of found your way into entrepreneurship and how you cultivated within your own career something that led to Silver Pop as a a point of departure. My entrepreneurial career was probably mostly due to the fact that I couldn't hit a wall with a ball from 10 feet. And uh, (laughs) so I tried to, when I was in high school, so I tried to find something else to do and found this computers. And I'm old enough that that was a really novel thing when I found it. And I'll never forget the first time I sat in front of a computer it made more sense to me than anything I'd ever seen before. And I fell in Mm. love. And so I got in early and have been able to parlay that into a series of startups and exits, worked for a while in venture capital with Greylock, took one company public. So it's been a really interesting journey uh, has led me through the software industry. Mm -hmm. Along the way, I have made more mistakes than most. So I've learned an awful lot and I started early. So I have uh, built up a good set of experiences in how to grow companies and now at this uh, chapter in my life, I'm looking forward to applying that as best I can towards making a dent in the universe of clean energy. I think it's worth noting, you mentioned to me that you're not much of a, of a podcast junkie as I am. Uh, I learn through audio. You uh, admittedly learn through visual and reading. We discussed an, an anecdotal interesting story about how it occurred to you that you needed a change in what you were doing. Can you explain how you came across clean energy, and then the pivotal conversation that sort of pushed you out of the nest and into the fray as we all are right now. (laughs) I had sold my company Silver Pop to IBM and was invited to help IBM run their whole strategy business, working with the CEO and SVPs on what does IBM do? How do what are the giant trends that are going to change the planet earth? And how can IBM play a role in those? And one of the areas that I looked at was clean energy. And I immediately and personally fell in love with it. The more I learned about it, the more I realized it was probably the biggest business opportunity in the history of business. And I was driving my friends and my family crazy, telling them about all these ideas I had, which were in hindsight, were many of which were pretty lame. But I felt that there was a giant opportunity here. And it really reminded me a lot when I first saw the internet. And I, I had this visceral sense that we were at the precipice of great change that has economic benefits, investor benefits, obviously huge social impact for the billion people that don't have electricity. And... I was driving everyone nuts and a good friend of mine uh, who is a photographer for the National Geographic and really uh, one of my great mentors said, uh, he called me up one night late and he says, Bill, I know what you need to do. I said, well, thank goodness. Uh, What is it I need to do? And he said, "You you need to write a book. And he reminded me that when I first got into marketing and I didn't know the industry, I started by writing a book. It was maybe the coolest idea I'd heard in the last 20 years. And so the idea caught fire in my brain and I literally gave notice to IBM a couple of days later. I spent months winding out the role I was in, but uh, I knew I had a path. Mm. And and uh, the point of a book is that I can ask really dumb questions to really smart people who will actually take the time to answer them. And it works. And you get educated by the smartest people. It's like a PhD from the best professors that ever were. Yeah. And it's, it's been a remarkable experience. Yeah, don't tell everyone that. That's not, that's not the secret of Suncast or anything. I am actually fascinated. I think this is one of the reasons why Andy wanted us to sit down together. You've 
done more interviews of interesting and I would say uh, intriguing people in the energy space than I have. You will, by the time this airs, be somewhere around 125-ish of the podcast. Tell us how many interviews have you done roughly in the energy space to inform your book? About 160 interviews all over the planet. Some of them were not that interesting, but several of them were absolutely amazing and uh, eye-opening. Yeah, so in the course of uh, writing this book, and the book is uh, is going to be coming out in uh, 20, 2019? Yes, um, okay. hopefully the first half. Yeah, the, the project is called Freeing Energy, yeah? For, yes. Yeah, and is the book going to be called Freeing Energy? That's the plan. Okay. So it's I have the URL for freeingenergy.com, and I'm writing to it every week. It's a yeah. scratch pad for the book. Yeah, so two resources that we'll certainly link to in the show notes are freeingenergy.com, which is, uh, I, I would say it's chock full. I, I can't get enough of the things that I'm reading, and and or transcribing into audio to listen to during, during drives or runs. But your TED Talk, which we'll also link to, is fascinating. And it, it illuminates for me how someone coming from outside our industry in the span of 18 months could become a keynote at uh, a major industry event. And I mean a renewables industry event, not just solar. But can you give us a taste of a handful of the folks that you have interviewed and some of the things that you've learned over the, over the course of getting indoctrinated into our industry? One of my early interviews uh, was Amory Levins. He's always been a hero of mine. I've been going to TED for 20 years, and he was an early TED speaker. And ever since I saw him talk, I had admired him tremendously, a personal hero. And the opportunity to interview him was remarkable. And I sat down with him. Before we got started with it, he he said, you know, there's a lot of you um, IT people that try to get in the clean energy space. And it's such a different industry that a lot of you struggle with it. And he said, so I really tip my hat to you that you're stepping back to really think about it and research and write a book. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he had no idea at the time, but that was such a North Star for me that I wasn't completely crazy to go do this. And then what, what happened for the next many hours was a remarkable interview where I got schooled and uh, learned and just laughed, uh, and many of, which, many of which will be in my book. And it was a little after that that through some mutual friends down here in the Southeast United States, uh, I had the chance to meet Jim Rogers, who, who was a retired... Uh, <laughs> Uh, CEO of Duke Energy. And Jim was, um, we were talking before we started recording, mm-hmm. and Jim was the first person that said to me, if you really want to understand the industry and its genesis, you need to understand a guy named Sam Insel, which became one of the my favorite parts of my writing so far, and will right. be a big part of the book, which is the yeah. genesis of the electricity industry. Yeah. And I'm going to be linking to that. We talked about this a little earlier, but on the way in today, uh, and I think we'll, I think we'll head this route. We'll just take this rabbit trail. I, having been in the solar industry for 12 plus years, had never heard of Sam Insel. And I almost feel a little elementary now in my education of our industry to have somehow missed one of the icons, one of the archetypes. One of the things that truly uh, amazed me is how enigmatic the decisions of Sam Insel are for not just the way that global industry has evolved, and I'll, I'll leave it to the Suncast tribe to go and read the article that I'll link because that article is fantastic. But one of the things that I was fascinated to learn is that one of the key contributions, early contributions from Sam Insel was the notion of time of use. Could you extrapolate the impact that time of use had on the core infrastructure of our society and then perhaps how how it became a double-edged sword? One of the reasons I've enjoyed writing this book so much is that there are patterns in history and across industries that are tremendous, and I love teasing out the similar patterns. And one of the great insights about researching the history of this industry, most of which is focused on the battle between AC and DC and 
the technical inventions. And what one of the core th themes of my book and one of the ideas that I really pull out from that history, perhaps a bit uniquely, is it was actually a battle of the business models. And what Sam Insel did was, you know, lots of people for 30 or 40 years knew how to make a power plant. They knew how to burn coal, turn a steam turbine, and wire up electricity, lights, and motors, whatever they... That wasn't a terribly new idea. Edison was the one that turned it into a business model by creating the Pearl Street Station and the grid around it. Mm. And uh, Tesla and Westinghouse allowed the world to deliver it over long distances with AC. But Insel, who is not as well known, brought the idea of turning it into a regulated monopoly and all, all kinds of interesting uh, business model inventions around it. And as you said, he realized, uh, and he was all about cost, by the way. His vision yeah. was to bring electricity to everybody. Yeah. And uh, history remembers him, depending on who you ask, in a very favorable way or a very <laughs> notorious way. Right. Many people say he's the, physically, if you look at him, he's the picture of the Monopoly man, which yeah. I think is lore. But anyhow, he had the idea that if we, if you look at assets differently and you think about them in an economically different way, you can make them much more effective. And so he, rather than looking at this as a static system, that it could produce whatever the customers needed. He, he redesigned it so that he better matched the customer's needs to his assets' abilities. And that's now the hallmark of everything, everything from airline ticket pricing to obviously a, a commercial power rates. Yeah. As I was listening and to this article, I began to think how, like you said, history repeats itself. And a lot of what he did for the power market, which in fact was the rise and in some ways the fall of... Commonwealth power and his thusly fleeing the country for many years. Uh, it made me think of the, you know, the notable, the smartest guys in the room, Enron, and what they did for energy trading, right? You laid out a progression, a, a mathematical progression for power, energy, and storage a little earlier. I'm wondering if we could try to get back to that conversation because I think that it it is something that for me was a new way to think. Uh, you and I were discussing the fact that many in our industry don't understand power and the difference between power and energy. And I'm not saying like that the people at utilities don't understand it because they clearly understand it. They were the original, as you said, um, they, they get that um, they understood your product as a service before, before the, the IT industry did. But what I find that is a lot of, in particular, sales folks, uh, sales and marketing folks on the, on the residential, not on the utility side of our business, they don't understand the business side of power and energy and how the transactions affect and how the archetype of how the industry is set up affects where we can go with this and what disruption truly means. Can we talk a little bit about that from your perspective as a technologist? And I'd love it if you could to walk us through that power as arithmetic conversation that we had. I'm happy to give you some thoughts on it. I have to caveat that I'm a mere student of this uh, and an observer of it, but the patterns have played out across other industries, including tech, which I've been in. Whenever you're trying to manage a complex system, and arguably the grid is the most complex thing ever created, the greatest machine that's ever been invented, and obviously that's been recognized by many, and it's true. And so when you have something so complex, you try to simplify how to manage it. And part of the brilliance of what Edison and Tesla and Insel all did was they created this brilliantly simple system or complex system that could be managed simply. So the way that I understand that most of the power industry is managed today is by power. It's by capacity so that we know that when that peak hot summer day happens or the coldest days in uh, electric uh, heaters in the Northeast happen, we have enough capacity to make sure that everyone gets the air conditioning or heat that they want. What really throws a wrench into that is intermittent power from renewables. And so while the models are incredibly complex on a power-focused uh, forecasting and modeling, um, I 
consider it with all tremendous respect to the people that do it. It's, it's arithmetic. It's something that you can model with systems that have been around for a few decades. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do, but still within the realm of uh, decades-old tech and systems and processes. But when you add intermittency, you really switch the focus from power, which is capacity, to what's available right now, which is energy. So there's uh, across the, the country and the world, there are now energy markets, not just capacity. And in fact, in many ways, they're larger than the capacity markets. But the, the calculations get more complicated. It looks a little bit more like stock trading, where you can, uh, you can do things like uh, default swaps and derivatives, and, and that happens. And, and Enron, as you mentioned earlier, is a, is a good or bad example of what happens when people take advantage of it. Energy is a more complicated market. There's more chances for innovation, more chances for corruption and breakage, but it, it works. But what's crazy... So, so if, if power is arithmetic, metaphorically, and energy is geometry, metaphorically, more complicated, the huge disruption coming in is storage, primarily battery storage, but any kind of cost-effective storage, because now you add a time domain to it, which is really breaks the century-old model of electricity, where we dealt with the, every time we have a load change, we have to have a generation change. That always had to be matched perfectly. While that was complicated to execute, it was simpler to model. When you can store electricity for short-term timeframes and pull it back out when you need it, you've created calculus. You've created a modeling and forecasting that is so far more advanced than anyone, I think, is really ready for. And I think you're going to see a lot of disruptive innovation around storage from a grid availability, reliability, financing model. It's exciting and a little scary. I couldn't agree more. And it's a great opportunity for us to segue into a segment I call Hot or Hype. And I didn't prepare you for this intentionally. (laughs) I love it when I get a chance to break in uh, folks that aren't uh, familiar with my show model. But uh, I will name a specific topic and you can spend 30 or 60 seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or hype and why. And, you know, lukewarm is a respectable answer, but it will require uh, defense. So we'll start with the first topic, and that is the notion that microgrids wants the model for how energy should proliferate will return as the core model for the future of the grid. Is that hot or hype? I'd have to say it's hype. That being said, I'm a huge fan of microgrids, but just like the massive rise in solar still collectively is 2% of the grid, and microgrids are way behind that curve. So in terms of actually affecting the grid, it's hype that it's going to happen. It's going to drive the grid mm-hmm. in any near-term time frame. If we don't have the collective vision to remake the Puerto Rico grid with a high density of microgrids, right. when there's money available and it's broken and needs to be rebuilt, and there's good reasons, by the way, they're not doing that, but there's also good reasons to do more of it than they are. I think collectively, we're not going to remake the grid in the next 10 years with microgrids. It'd be great if we could. Don't yeah. see it happening. To that end, and I know that you're an electric car uh, enthusiast. Let's move to the next topic. Uh, hot or hype, the nexus of distributed energy and e-mobility. I think the single greatest driver of decentralization in the grid is storage, and the single greatest driver of storage without any close second is electric vehicles. So as we move to a V2G world vehicle to grid world, mm-hmm. where batteries not just are charging at the right time to offset grid pricing and to maximize grid optimization, but also being a resource back to the grid, that is a perfect example of the calculus I referred to earlier. The complexity is incredible, but the opportunities for more resiliency, for lower costs, fewer blackouts, better handling of hurricanes and weather events, it's amazing. What's missing that in the next 18 months could transform that conversation? 
I think electric vehicles are well on their way to making a massive change, and it's happening very, very quickly. In fact, I don't think anybody could predict it how quickly electric vehicles are catching on. And there's a reason, by the way, they're better cars. Yeah. Uh, and we're very close to the time where they're cheaper cars. Mm-hmm. And that's a really competitive combination. I don't think we need a lot for it to happen. If we wanted to push it faster, we need to maintain the tax credits that are going away. Yeah, comes back to policy. But I don't think we need it. I think it's going to take care of itself even without the policy shift. That in, in itself is transformative. So move on to the next topic, hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. <laughs> probably 20% of the interviews I've done, the most common topic in my interviews is explain blockchain to me. And I'm just a software guy with a minor in computer science, and I've been a programmer for many years. So I actually understand blockchain at a computer science level. Yeah, better than most. And uh, <laughs> and I understand cryptography and the notions behind it and the benefits of it. And it's a, it's a brilliant solution for things like cryptocurrency. Uh, and uh, there's a, some other examples where I see that it works. I have yet to see a breakthrough idea where it could help energy for two reasons. One is that the big benefit I've heard of blockchain is allows people allows people to trade energy peer to peer, but as far as I know that's illegal in almost every market in the world, not just the United States. So when I've asked people about it, they say we need regulatory reform for blockchain to live up to what its potential is. By the way, I do think there is a role for blockchain. I just don't know if it's anywhere close to the hype it's being touted as, is that I think there's a lot of benefit for having um, someone you can call an 800 number and ask a question to. So the reason we have Visa and MasterCard and they haven't been completely eclipsed by cash or Venmo or PayPal is that it's really nice to have a third party. Actually, Venmo and PayPal are third parties. We want someone to go to if we're not happy. And so if my neighbor, I think he or she is cheating on their peer-to-peer energy trading with me, am I willing to pay half a percent to some third party who will uh, coordinate, validate, and solve that for us? So I think when you have that third party where it does exist, the blockchain isn't as valuable. I could not have scripted this because you did not see any of the questions intentionally. But my fourth point and final point of, of hot or hype is transactive energy. I think transactive energy is uh, white hot. And for, I don't think you need a, interme- I don't think you need a crypto uh, intermediary, intermediary to make it work. But transactive energy, again, it does require peer-to-peer but there are markets, uh, say, within campuses or buildings mm-hmm. uh, where it does start to make sense. But I think the idea of using an economic model to optimize a marketplace has proven itself in hundreds of different industries. And I think as you find isolated situations, think a mini grid in Africa, mm-hmm. think a, a campus or an think apartment the complex. Bro- the Brooklyn microgrid. Yes, that's a good example. Regulatory, difficult to do. Um, but I think the transactive model has got a lot of promise and will be the way that we can explore to the edge of the grid. One, actually, uh, the, I went to a conference and saw Anne uh, Pramagori, the CEO of uh, mm-hmm. ComEd, and she said that microgrids and transactive systems were the laboratories of the future grid. And that really hit me because I do think that these experiments that are happening peripherally today will ultimately make the people in charge of the central part of the grid comfortable. But it, but it's going to come from the outside and the edge in. And, and those are good examples of how it'll happen. So- with that in mind, Bill, what are the megatrends that you're seeing in the industry? I just wrote about this on my my site, and I think there are a couple of substantial megatrends that actually came up at a conference I was uh, speaking at last week on distributed energy. I think uh, one of them is shifting from a uh, top-down to an edge-in. And today, every single part of the grid is top-down. The obvious things like giant power plants and a uh, large companies owning most parts of the grid, but also regulation that tends to be, even at the state level, still top-down. Uh, and obviously also financing, which I think a lot of people overlook. Um, mm. 
we're still in a paradigm where financing large power plants makes a lot of sense. When we start to think about moving from the edge in, all of that changes. And when you can finance projects at a small level, like a community scale solar, for example, well, that's still being explored and being refined conceptually, economically, it's a very small investment. It's a very small risk and lots of people are capable of making it. There's very few organizations that can fund a $20 billion nuclear plant. Hmm. Very, very few. But there's a tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of organizations that can fund creatively a $5 million community solar plant. So, that, And when I want to build a community solar plant, I can do it in three to nine months versus a giant coal plant or even right. a giant gas plant, which could take years. So that edge in means that everything happens faster, risk and fixes and learning happens much faster. And we're just, and there's examples throughout the industry where that's happening today. It doesn't require major regulatory reform, although that would help too. Hey, I got a quick question for you. Are you a manager running a solar sales team or an engineering team? Or maybe you're one of the engineers or salespeople on that team. And you, like many of my friends, are waiting days on end until the engineering team can get back with a design because they're frankly backlogged and they're the critical path. Hey, look, can we stop the madness already and empower the sales and engineering team with a true productivity and accuracy tool? It's called Helioscope. Now, I could tell you all about how DNVGL report shows reliability to within 1% of their common models. And well-known banks like Wells Fargo accept Helioscope reports in place of PVSYST. But what you really need to know is that system design is no longer in the black box of engineers and CAD drawings. It is speeding up the sales process and quality for thousands of customers. 3D design, rapid proposals, bankable simulations, even one-click sharing through Energy Toolbase. The list goes on. Look, head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be given an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's right, 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you and your sales team. Helioscope is fast, easy, and bankable. So go ahead, start a free trial. Get 30 days on me. If you're enjoying Suncast and you'd like to have access, not just to all the additional stuff I can't publish in the primary feed, but also the back channel of conversation, chat, webinars, and inner circle advisory that other solar warriors are enjoying, consider checking out the Suncast tribe. You can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash member. The second mega trend is something that I've really seen play out in the computer industry, which I've been in for decades. It's what I call a shift from economies of scale to economies of volume. And what I mean is that for 80 years, the power industry grew by making ever larger power plants. Right. And in the somewhere between the 90s and 2003, roughly, the average size of the power plant peaked and then started shrinking and shrank dramatically. And so there were no longer economic benefits for building a larger power plant. It became more expensive to make it larger. That happened in the computer industry. It happened with uh, mainframes. It happened with large databases. And once people realized they still wanted cost savings, but they couldn't get it by getting bigger, they figured out how to do it by getting smaller. And the entire notion of cloud computing as it exists today is not because there's a bunch of mainframes in the cloud. It's because there's millions of small PCs that are acting in unison in a way that no one could have predicted possible. When you make more and more of a thing, it gets cheaper and cheaper. And benefit of economies of volume doesn't work for nuclear plants. It doesn't work for coal plants because you're just not going to make that many. You're going to make a tiny handful, mm -hmm. but you can make a lot of solar cells. Mm. And the more solar cells, you can make a lot of batteries, a lot of cells. 
And the more of them we make, the cheaper they get. So the, it's the economies of volume that are going to drive the next two or three decades of decreasing costs in the generation of electricity. It's going to switch, shift from being large to being many. And number three is everyone's favorite, which is storage. Yeah. And as we talked about earlier, I think storage is disruptive at the levels that in the ways that I think the industry is talking about a lot today, but I think it's also disruptive in ways that the industry hasn't talked about yet, which, uh, for example, not only can we move power around and use it when we need it or where we need it and solve uh, all kinds of infrastructure challenges, but it also means that um, we can model it in entirely different ways and in, in time series analysis rather than sort of capacity analysis. So it changes everything about the industry and creates tremendous opportunities for innovation that haven't existed in it before. On, I think on any one of these, we could, deal, we could dig down and I would love to, uh, time constraints being what they are, I'm going to continue to move forward. But I would love to know uh, if we haven't touched on already, what market drivers do you see dictating the way that solar and clean tech are going to evolve and how can entrepreneurs prepare themselves to get ahead of that curve? Well, solar is the ultimate entrepreneurial generation tool because you can put it on your house mm -hmm. and it's the only energy generation technology that scales down to that level and still makes some economic sense. So I think solar is a driver for a lot of the innovation we've seen, both obviously in technology, but also in business startups. And the number of companies that are doing solar is thousands. Mm -hmm. And I think the entire value chain, which is unfortunately due to regulations and macroeconomic effects, gets its name the solar coaster, rightfully. Yeah, but that being said, I think over the if we look back over the next 20 years from history, mm -hmm. uh, from the future backwards, I think we're going to see that almost all the really great startups and unicorns and billionaires that get created are going to be on the back of solar and batteries. Do you think they've already been founded? Not even close. No. Not even close. <laughs> I've been through enough technology disruptions to realize. I always like to t point out that this guy named Bob Metcalf invented Ethernet. And he allowed us to sh put lots of computers on a single wire and share stuff. We used different printing and files in the beginning, and obviously it became the internet later. Bob Metcalf is a brilliant guy. By the way, he's in energy now. He teaches in Texas. Um, but uh, as visionary as he was, you could never have pictured Google, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking. But I doubt he envisioned Facebook. I, I doubt he envisioned PayPal. Right. The, 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 the simple technique of how to share data on a wire became the platform right. that change the world. And I think that we're shifting in energy away from energy as a service to energy, to the mm -hmm. grid as a platform. And that is going to create innumerable business models. So we're just, no one can predict what they're going to be. And that's why I get excited. That's why I'm in this industry now. I love it. I love it. You've gotten me excited in a way that I haven't been for a long time. Um, and that's why I was really, that's why I was motivated to drive six hours and, and sit in traffic for an hour and a half this morning to be in front of you. <laughs> and I'm grateful for this opportunity. With that in mind, and as there are so many entrepreneurs out there like Matthew Britton and Adam Boucher and others who are part of our tribe that are building their own companies, they would want to ask this question of you, I believe. And maybe it's a little too, too Tim Ferriss of me, but I'm, I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, what advice might you give yourself going into Silver Pop or maybe just before that, maybe going into Greylock? What advice might you give yourself 10, 15 years back? It's a question I ask myself a lot. I, I reflect on this because it's the opportunities to learn and improve are incredible. So my answer is going to be a little fluffy, but it's genuine and I mean it, which is no matter what industry you're in, including a particularly crazy one like solar, there's so much out of your control. You may have a great boss. You may have a bad boss. You may have an idea that the world is just two years early and it flops. 
there's a million things out of your control. So the one thing that you can control in your career is improving yourself. Mm. And that really comes in a couple of flavors. One is that every mistake is an opportunity to learn. Every failure is a huge opportunity to learn and grow um, and maybe not make the same mistake twice. But also, if you look at the scorecard, not as your title or your salary or the company you're at, but how much better as a business person or an accountant or whatever it is you're pursuing that you're making yourself, that's your scorecard, uh, then you can always control the ability to improve that. And mm -hmm. I found for me that there are points in my career where many points where people thought I was out of my mind, the decisions I've made uh, that harmed my career. Why did you take that huge salary cut? You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I've always had a North Star that I guess just good fortune and good luck did push me towards, well, where am I going to learn the most? Where am I at the exit of this or through this process? Am I going to be, at least in my mind and hopefully in others, a better business person? And why would I go work at Greylock? I'd run several companies, I'd run a company, I'd had an exit uh, because I knew working at Greylock, I would see and I did, I looked at 3,000 businesses and I met some of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world at the time. And the things I learned from them were were game-changing for me. Right. And so ultimately I didn't make my career there. I got excited about a company I'd funded and went to run it, but the learning was amazing. And and so that was all, it always been, has always been my North Star. And that is exactly why I'm in the clean energy industry and why I'm not an, afraid to enter something I don't know anything about. Actually, I am afraid. It's very unnerving, but uh, why I'm willing to do it because uh, I figure even if it doesn't work out, I'm pretty sure it will, but even if it doesn't, the things I'm learning, the, the echoes of business models, the people I'm meeting, the brilliant minds I've interacted with, those will help me whatever I do in my career. You have two boys. I have three boys. A lot of the decisions I make are with them in mind. I like to believe that I'm not unique in that as a father. Can you give me any insight into the tension between leaving a legacy as a business person and a legacy as a father? Boy, that's a really important question. And one that I think uh, I probably deal with on a daily basis. You know, I, I left a business event that was really important last night to come home and help my son with his college essays. I have one rule, um, which is my kids are older than yours, but I, one of the rules that I've always lived by, uh, I came up with it early on is if, particularly with boys, um, is when they wanna talk, no matter sort of an absolute emergency, I will spend, I will stop whatever I'm doing uh, whether I'm in another country, another time zone, what I will stop with it and I will be there for as long as they want to talk. Yeah. Um, and so, and what I realized, it's not the number of hours I spend with him. It's the quality of the hours I do spend. Um, that being said, I also try to live my life in a way where I can spend as much time with my kids as I can. I haven't found the right way to find that balance. It's mm -hmm. tough, Yeah. but, uh, I think it's, uh, and then the other thing that my wife and I always talk about, I just love them fiercely because sometimes yeah. you're just so mad at them and they're mad at you, but you always love them always mm -hmm. loved them. And that has actually, as they got older and more complicated, it was, it became more important to, uh, to reaffirm how much we cared for them always because psych uh, personalities come into play and psychology yeah. comes into play things. I didn't have to worry about when they were 10 years old, yeah. but I think it's, uh, reaffirming how much we care for each other and just, just reminding ourselves the kids remind us and we remind them. That's also been really great. The other thing that I've, when I think about my career and my kids, and I don't know if this is the right thing to do or not, but it was something that we wrestled with and decided we would do is that my career has been, uh, has had times in it that have been excruciating and challenging and soul crushing. And when my kids were in middle school, some of these kind of things occurred and we decided not to hide it from them. And we decided that we would be in terms they could understand, we'd explain the challenges I was facing mm -hmm. and how my wife and I came together to get through these. And I don't know whether it was a mistake or not, but it made it, 
it was unique among some of the parents and some of the advisors said we shouldn't do it. Kids weren't ready for it. But I do think they both have a much broader perspective of the real world as a result. And I feel like maybe they're a little more realistic about what to expect and how to find their own way because of seeing really what it meant to be a business person, not just the idealized version they might see on television or movies. And the sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. Answer the one that you want to answer. Either what book has most influenced your leadership style or the way that you um, think about business or what book would you start with if you wanted to give yourself or your sons a curriculum coming out of college that would prepare them better for the real world? I haven't read a book that I think captures the philosophy as clearly that I could hand it to my kids as you've asked. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that as they think about if they pursue careers in business, I would have a really easy answer for them. To me, the the number one business book and probably one that every energy tech thinker should be looking at is The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. And it is, without a close second, my favorite book. And it has informed the way that uh, I think great change occurs and how you can navigate it better uh, and how you can be successful through it. But more importantly, just great change doesn't happen the way people think it does. Yeah. And Dr. Christensen does a great job of explaining it. Anticipating your book question, but differently, when I got into the industry, I asked people, what book do I need to read? And uh, uh, Ira Aaron Prius told me a book that was my first, the first book I read, and it's been one of my favorites since, which is Juergen's The Prize. And if you want to really understand the macroeconomics of energy, there is no better book to read. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And it's a, it's a long book, but uh, Ira steered me correctly on that one. And it completely changed my perspective of the role that energy plays in the planet Earth and its geopolitics. And the other book, which is by Peter Fox Printer, which is a book called Smart Power. And uh, I think he does a particularly good job of explaining just the middle level, not the sort of really deep, I'm in the industry and I'm running utility level, but also higher level than the cocktail party conversation. For those of us that really want to lean into the industry, I think he has some great case studies. And it was one of, I've read about 20 books in the industry and his is one of my favorite. I love it. Really quickly, what one thing do you consistently do that yields the greatest impact or results in your life? I take a lot of notes. I have a modest memory, so I write down things all the time mm -hmm. uh, and I organize them. I take the time to go back and organize the notes and put them in tools where I can find things very quickly. I tag them with keywords and things like that. And it turns out it's a tremendous way to augment my memory, particularly in a, I'm in a research mode like this, but I've always taken notes. Where can people find you? How could they get more of you? How could they reach out to you? Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? I have too many social handles uh, as I write the book. And, and now I have a startup called Solar mm -hmm. Inventions. Most of my work goes into freeingenergy.com or the Twitter handle, Freeing Energy. Also, the, probably the most vibrant following of that work is on Facebook, so Facebook slash Freeing Energy. But I'm also, I've got a personal blog called nussynotes.com. Uh, I occasionally uh, post to Twitter, be nussy. And, and then, of course, solarinventions.com is the, the most current project I've started on, very exciting innovations and breakthroughs in solar. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you, Bill Nussie, see happening that perhaps no one else is tracking in the market? What's in your crystal ball? There's a lot of things that most of the people listening to this would find obvious, but you know, outside of your educated readers or listeners wouldn't. I think we're closer to a tipping point on the cost of renewable energy being just irresistible than most people think. And there's been a rapid adoption to date, and it's been driven somewhat by subsidies and appropriate calls to save the environment. But there is a point at which the cost gets so much less expensive than even the most entrenched existing alternatives or incumbents, I should say, that you'll wake up and uh, we will not 
understand how we got into a clean future as quickly as we actually will be doing in the near future. Well, as we transition to that inevitable precipice and our clean energy future becomes ever more rapidly evolving, we will be, as always, chronicling it here on Suncast. We will be interviewing amazing futurist technologists and brilliant men like Bill Nussie. Thank you for joining us on Suncast today, sir. It's been a real pleasure, been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to uh, see the other things that you help us steer towards in the future of solar and the energy industry. Thank you. The feelings mutual, likewise. And thanks, Andy Klump, once again, for putting us together. All right, Solar Warriors, how are you feeling about that interview? I told you you were going to love the time with Bill, and I'm certain it didn't fall short. I encourage you, please, to go check out Bill's blog posts over at freeingenergy.com. You can see one of my favorites from his blog over on my own blog at mysuncast.com, where I've reposted with his permission one of his top articles. Would you mind sharing your major takeaways with me from this episode? Twitter. My handle is at Nico Mayo, N-I-C-O-M-E-O. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. Both of those are linked from mysuncast.com. And since you're in the action-taking mood, I'd like to encourage you to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I share my thoughts on each episode, and I'll let you know whenever I think there's something interesting that you should know about, like next episodes of Suncast, or, of course, where I'll be in the world and how we can meet up, and new ways for you to learn and stay ahead of the pack. You can also check out our Suncast tribe, which is my inner circle of listeners and advisors, by clicking on that Become a Member button. Well, we'll have Bill's partner in solar innovations, Ben Damiani, on the show in the coming weeks. In the meantime, here's what you can expect from next week's show. So one of the things that I did on the weekends was to look at off-grid properties that I could afford throughout Northern California. It was about searching for a community, place to raise a family, a place that had the right climate, uh, and affordable as well. So that was my weekend adventures. Sam Vanderhoof is one of the U.S. solar industry's iconic figures. And in this episode, we talk about how he and his friends in Northern California made history in the 70s and 80s, and what he's doing now in a career that spanned more than 40 years in solar. I look forward to spending time with you then. And in the meantime, I hope you have a fantastic week. Hope you're getting ready for the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. I'm grateful for you and I give thanks for your presence, my friend. Thanks again for showing up. It is half the battle.